Hey, Revelation 12 is where we are today. If you don't have a Bible, we'd love to put one in your hands. We've been going through the series on Revelation in order to know who Jesus is, the revelation of Jesus, and we'd love to give you a Bible for you to track with us. I was having dinner at a friend's house uh, very recently, and one of the things I love to do when I'm in someone's home is just get to know them, get to know their story, understand their family more, know about their hobbies, know about their job. This particular friend is a soldier, and so I said, hey, could you tell me some kind of story, you know, and I know it's some, some story you have to be permitted to speak about, but maybe some time where you saw something exciting or saw some action. And then what began to unfold was straight out of an action movie. He talks about his first time in combat. And, and usually, on a side note, usually after we eat a meal, like my boys are quick to excuse themselves and go off and play, but not that night. They're like gathered around the table, hanging on every word. And so my friend talks about the chopper going in in this Middle Eastern country in the middle of the night, landing in a field overtaken by enemy enemy soldiers and getting out of the chopper with his full body armor on and with his weapons. And I'm like, okay, wait, wait, stop, stop, stop. Because I know a little about guns. I'm like, hey, tell me, tell me what, kind of, what kind of weapons you had. And he's like, do you want to see them? <laughs> I'm like, do I want to see them? What a dumb question is that? Of course I want to. All of a sudden, my boys and I are in, in his bedroom and he's like opening up cases and handing me like a side, a side arm. And then he pulls out his machine gun I'm like, can I have dinner over here every Friday night? It w- this was exciting. Some of you guys are going, who is this pastor right now? But th- this, this was an exciting night. I just have to say, all dinner conversations are not created equal. And, and so he starts telling the story of them having to overtake a, a, a Taliban com- compound and going in with the night vision glasses and the, the laser scopes. And then he talks about clearing out the compound, which was bad. And the next day, they're sitting on the roof watching guard, he and some senior members of his platoon. And, and he's watching as the senior members just you know, they haven't seen any action in hours, and just, everything seems peaceful, so they strip off their body armor and take off their helmets and put down their guns, and he's like, well, I guess this is what we do on these missions, and I guess I'm safe, so he starts taking off his armor, takes off his helmet, takes off his gun. Next thing they do, they're like opening up their bowls of spaghetti and just sitting there chilling, eating, joking around, when all of a sudden, the roof is lit up with machine gun fire. His spaghetti goes all over, noodles going everywhere. He's on the ground, spread eagle, no armor, no helmet, no gun, just spaghetti (laughs) as the place is just on fire. So he's on his back scurrying across the top because over in the corner is a huge 50 cal machine gun that he's trying to get to to give them some reprieve from the enemy's assault. So he scurries over on his back, finally gets to the huge 50 cal, you know, those huge guns, gets it loaded, and all of a sudden, (gasps) click, 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 click. It's totally jammed. And he goes, and that's the beginning of my military career. And I said, bro, is there any way I can tell that story as we start our message on Revelation 12? It's perfect. And he's like, oh, 
I am so embarrassed. I feel so stupid because here is the beginning of my military exploits and I was totally unprepared for battle. And I'm like, exactly. Because that's the exact situation that many Christians find themselves in when it comes to the assault of Satan and his demons. Selah. This is where we find ourselves in Revelation 12. If you start with me in verse 1, it says this, a great sign appeared in heaven. And let me just tell you, as we begin to unpack this, the reason we're going to devote ourselves in this overview, we're doing a summary, we're not able to cover every chapter, every verse in the book of Revelation because of the time that we have for this series, but we are doing an, an overview of the book of Revelation. We have to pause and really dissect Revelation 12, because it's the central axis, it's the theological center of the book of Revelation. Let me just explain it this way before we get any further. We've done four messages on Revelation. The first we showed where the Apostle John was exiled onto the island of Patmos, a rocky island where he is deserted, he's left to just rot and die, and in prayer, Jesus shows up and starts speaking to him and unpacking what will become. Our second message, we talked about what Jesus says to John, these letters to the churches, these letters to these persecuted churches in Asia. Our, our third message, uh, message, we saw a door standing open in heaven, a door to the very throne room of God, where John begins to understand that the center of the universe is the throne of God, the seat of power. Our next message, we talked about a lamb that's seated on that throne. And that lamb comes and takes the scroll and has authority to set things in motion. And so the earth starts experiencing the unfolding of the end times. When we get to this message, Revelation 12, you've got to understand that it's a 30,000 foot overview. It's like a, a looking down where all of what John was getting is what is to come. Now this is going to be a picture of what has happened, what is currently happening, and what's going to happen in the future. And that's where we find ourselves as we continue in verse 1. A woman clothed with the sun, with the moon under her feet, and a crown and twelve stars on her head. She was pregnant, and she cried out in pain as she was about to give birth. Then another sign appeared in heaven, an enormous red dragon with seven heads and ten horns and seven crowns on its head. Its tail swept a third of the stars out of the sky and flung them to the earth. The dragon stood in front of the woman who was about to give birth so that it might devour her child the moment he was born. She gave birth to a son, a male child, who will, quote, rule all the nations with an iron scepter, end quote. And her child was snatched up to God and to his throne. The woman fled into the wilderness to a place prepared for her by God where she might be taken for 1260 days. The war broke out in heaven. Michael, sorry, there we go. Michael and his angels fought against the dragon and the dragon and the angels fought back, but he was not strong enough and they lost their place in heaven. The great dragon was hurled down, that ancient serpent called the devil or Satan who leads the whole world astray. He was hurled to the earth and his angels with him. Let's unpack this incredible picture that's happening. What we see for the first time in the book of Revelation is the word sign. John sees a sign. He's looking into heaven and he sees a sign. What is a sign? A sign tells of something greater. It's not just literally what he's seeing, but he understands that it's speaking of something else. So he sees a sign of a woman in heaven. 
What do we understand the sign of this woman to be? It's the people of God. It's Israel. We know this because it says that she's clothed in the sun. Her feet are on the moon. She has the 12 stars. This is, we look back into the Old Testament in Genesis chapter 37, is a direct allusion to a dream that the son of Jacob or the son of Israel, Jacob's also known as Israel, his son Joseph has a prophetic dream. And in this dream, the sun and the moon and the 11 stars bow down to him. Who is this woman? This woman is Israel. That's one of the things that this woman is pointing to. Israel, who would be pregnant? This woman is pregnant. The people of Israel would bring forth, would give birth to the Messiah of the world. This sign also speaks to the church. The church is the family of God. The bride of Christ who hastens the return of our Lord and Savior by its prayer, by its sharing of the great commission. We long for Jesus to come back to the world. Lastly, the sign of this woman is Mary. Mary, the Virgin Mary, who conceived by the Holy Spirit and gave birth to the Lord Jesus Christ. Then we come to verse 3. There's an enormous red dragon. I mean, isn't this the perfect story? How many fairy tales, how many movies have you seen where there's a battle between the knight and the dragon? Why is that? Have you ever wondered where this came? It's straight from the Bible, folks. Like, why are we in love with these kind of stories, the fight between good and evil? Because in us, innately, is this understanding that there's an enemy that's attacking and there's a good soldier marching forth to defeat the dragon. It says this red dragon is there with its seven heads and ten horns and seven crowns. The head symbolizes authority. The horns symbolize strength. And it says his tail swept a third of the stars from the sky and flung them onto the earth. This is the angels that were once in heaven with Satan that are flung to the earth, says the dragon stands in front of the woman who's about to give birth so that he might devour her child the moment it was born. Do you know that this actually played out in reality when Mary was bringing forth baby Jesus, an evil king who's inspired by the enemy, his name was Herod, decided to wipe out every baby boy, every Hebrew baby boy. And so what happens, just as the scripture says, the woman, Joseph being warned, her husband being warned in a dream by the angel, takes Mary and the boy and flees into the wilderness, into Egypt, to run from this persecution. It's amazing how this is unfolding before us, how this story is a symbol in heaven, but it's actually happening on earth. But here's another amazing thing. This story sounds fantastic to us. It sounds extraordinary to us. We're going, is that real? What's what's that all about? It sounds so, so foreign, so mystical. Do you know that the people of this day and age had a story like this that was a part of their everyday life? The Greeks and the Romans believed in the god Zeus 
and believed in a son named Apollos. And let me just read this story and see if it sounds familiar. In Greek mythology, the island of Delos, which is not far from the island of Patmos, where John had this revelation, was sacred to the Greeks because it's known as the birthplace of the god Apollos. Apollos was the son of Zeus, the father of the gods. While his mother was pregnant with Apollos, she fled to the island to escape the dragon Python, who wanted to kill this new son of Zeus. When she reached Delos safely, the god Poseidon hid the island under the water so that Python could not find her. And her son, as the story goes, four days after Apollos was born, he went to Delphi and killed the dragon. Now this is just amazing to me. Because what the apostle John is seeing is now putting the true terms to the story that had been in Greek and Roman mythology for centuries. He's going, this father of all gods, it's not Zeus, it's Jehovah. This son, it's not Apollos, it's Jesus Christ. This dragon is not Python, it's the devil. And yes, one day the king of kings and lord of lords will crush his head and defeat him forever. What an evangelistic tool this story was. But here's something else that I think is just fascinating. Could it be that all these cultures had had that story intrinsically in them because God had been revealing himself to them for centuries, but they had misplaced wrong names, human names on them, and God is just waiting for his apostle to come and bring the truth and reinterpret history so that they might come to know him? I mean, that's what missionaries have been finding all over the earth, isn't it? If you read... Don Richardson's book, the, the, the famous missionary who went into Irian Jaya, who went into the Sawi tribe, he wrote a book called Eternity in Their Hearts. The book of Ecclesiastes says that God's already placed eternity in our hearts. And as he goes and starts working with this tribe that had never been touched by modern civilization, he found in their myths, in their folklore, in their traditions, biblical stories, like a story of the flood, a story of a son who would redeem the people. And he pointed those stories and said, these stories that you've been telling for centuries, they speak of the one true living God, and Jesus Christ is his son, and the whole tribe came to know Jesus. The Lord longs that none should perish, but all come to an understanding of his truth. And he's waiting for his people, you and me, to partner with him and to speak about his glorious grace. Now we keep on in this story. Verse 9 says this, the great dragon was hurled down. The ancient serpent called the devil or Satan who leads the whole world astray. He's hurled to the earth and his angels with him. Now, I want to give you an understanding of who the devil is today. This sermon is going to focus highly on the person of the devil, and this is why it's important for you to know your adversary. And uh, recent research has shown something that's very alarming in the church, that only 35% of Christians actually believe there's a literal devil. That means 65% of people that are gracing the seats and the doors of our churches don't believe the devil is real. And I believe that's exactly what the devil wants for the church today. Because if we don't believe in a real devil, we won't set up a guard against him in our lives. You'll leave your doors wide open. You'll leave your windows right open for him to come in and have his way with you. So we want to speak about who the devil is. Isaiah 14, 
12 through 15. Now, let me just tell you this. We don't want to become in awe of the devil. We're not going to spend in all, all of your history, if you've been with us from the beginning, this is the first message where I've ever actually preached about him. So we're not going to make much of the devil. We want to make much of God. But you do need to be informed on who your enemy is so that you can defend yourself. Isaiah 14 is where we get an understanding of how the devil actually came to be a ruler upon the earth. Isaiah 14, 12 through 15 says then, How you have fallen from heaven, morning star, son of the dawn. You've been cast down to earth. You who once laid low the nations, you said in your heart, I will ascend to the heavens. I will raise my throne above the stars of God. I will sit enthroned on the Mount of Assembly, on the utmost heights of Zaphon. I will ascend above the tops of the clouds. I will make myself like the Most High. But you were brought down to the realm of the dead, to the depths of the pit. The devil, or Satan, or the angel Lucifer, which means messenger of light or bringer, of light, was in heaven with God, but his sin was wanting to usurp God, to receive the authority, to receive the worship that only God deserves. And so he was thrown down from heaven with one-third of the angels that follow him. We see Jesus speaking of this in Luke 10, 18, where he says, I saw Satan fall like lightning from heaven. He was once in heaven. He's thrown to earth. We saw that in Revelation 12. And then what does he do? He comes in the garden as a serpent and deceives man and woman. He takes away their rightful rule of the earth. He says, did God really say that you could have anything? He lies to them and causes them to sin. And that is why after usurping the rule from man, it says in John 12, 31 and John 14, 30, that Satan is the prince of this world. Now, I want to be very clear about this because I hear many Christians speaking of Satan like he's a, a toothless, nailless kitty cat, acting like there's nothing to worry about. Speaking of him, even cursing him and, and calling him names, praying against him, addressing him in prayer and, and, and denouncing him. And I want to tell you that that's a great way to get yourself in trouble. Scripture doesn't tell us to do that. In fact, it tells us the opposite. This is very interesting in Jude 1.9. It says, when the angel, when the archangel Michael contending with the devil was disputing about the body of Moses, he did not presume to pronounce a blasphemous judgment, but said, the Lord rebuke you. I just want to warn you today, I want to give you several precautions in your fight with Satan. And one is this, don't curse him. Don't blaspheme him. Don't denounce him. The archangel Michael, with all his authority, said, the Lord rebuke you. I often see Christians, once they understand about spiritual warfare, all of a sudden they're like the, the, the little freshman boxer. They're like, let me at him, let me at him. You know, I'm, I'm gonna go. And, and they go and try to pick a fight with Satan and his spirits, and that is very stupid. Any soldier could tell you that you should never go looking for a fight without the orders of your commanding officer. Don't go looking for a fight 
on the, on the flip side, I know that there's people in this room that you feel beat up by the enemy. You feel, you feel punched. You feel like he's taking te- cheap shots. He's just plaguing you. He's going after your mind. And, and so I hear Christians that on, the, on the complete other side to say, I just want to give up the fight. I am so tired of fighting. I'm just going to give in. They actually feel like if I give in, then maybe he'll just leave me alone. That's never what he'll do. Scripture says in John chapter 10 that the thief comes only to steal, kill, and destroy. He's never just going to let you be. He will not stop until you are destroyed. So we have to be like the, the words of Winston Churchill to the country of England when it's being bombarded by Nazi Germany. He said, never, never, never give up. He said, we'll fight them on the land. We'll fight them in the sea. I'm so glad that even in the midst of being destroyed that they never gave up because it gave us a whole different world than if the Nazis would have taken over. Never give up, Christian, in your fight against the enemy. I was uh, thinking about this message because I know that when we preach on something like this, some people are like, hey, why are you talking about the enemy? I mean, you're ruining my perfect day. I'm going to have this great, relaxing Sunday, and now you have to tell me about the devil coming after me. Yeah, you know, I, I thought it's a, it's a lot like the other day. I, I, I went out to East County to, t- to take a hike, and I get out on the trail, and I walk up to one of those big signs, and on the sign says, warning, mountain lions. And then it tells you what to do in case of mountain lions. And I had several options. My first option is to go, man, why'd they put that there? It just ruins my day. Now I'm going to be thinking about mountain lions the whole time. <laughs> right? That, that, that's, that's one opinion. The second one is, is you can read it and go, oh, oh, they're mountain lions? Oh, I need to be cautious. And Oh, and this is what you actually do? If there's a mountain lion, you, do, you don't run away. Don't, don't be intimidated. Instead, make yourself big and, and, and speak strongly. And, and, you know, and, and then there's, a, I guess, the third group that looks at it and is like, whatever. There's not going to be any mountain lions here. That's just silliness. What are the chances of me seeing a mountain lion? I just want to tell you the other day, I'm walking and there's a mountain lion eight feet from me. It doesn't matter if you think they're going to be there or not. Like, honestly, it doesn't really matter if you think that Satan's going to attack you or not. The Bible's very clear that he's going to. This is what the Bible says in 1 Peter 5, 8, be alert and sober-minded. Your enemy, the devil, prowls around like an East County mountain lion. I mean, like a roaring lion looking for someone to devour. Be alert, Scripture says, and of sober mind. Your enemy, your enemy. Do you know that you have an enemy? So I've told you what not to do. So what should you do? Well, let's continue on in this amazing text in verse 10 through 12. Then I heard a loud voice in heaven saying, Now have come the salvation and the power and the kingdom of our God and the authority of his Messiah. For the accuser of our brothers and sisters who accuses them before our God day and night has been hurled down. They triumphed over him by the blood of the lamb and the word of their testimony. They did not love their lives so much as to shrink from death. Therefore rejoice, you heavens, and you dwell in them. But woe to the earth 
in the sea because the devil has gone down to you. He's filled with fury because he knows his time is short. You know, the first thing I want you to make note of is that the devil is known as the accuser of the brothers, the accuser of the sisters. Perhaps you felt accused. I imagine all of you have. I remember distinctly a time my junior year in high school where I was wrongly accused of something I didn't do by a teacher, and I remember her yelling at me, and I felt so belittled, and I felt so helpless, and I just wanted to leave the school and never come back. That's a great picture of what the enemy does in our lives, beloved. He, he, he wants to crush you with his accusation. How does that play out in our life? Maybe you've been a person who've dealt with fear. Like you're always having these thoughts of fears coming in. Well, maybe this is going to happen. Maybe I'm going to lose all my money. Maybe I'm going to get sick. Maybe I'm going to get in a car accident. Maybe someone's going to come and kill me in the middle of the night. You're just always having these fears. And you think, that's just me. I'm just a fearful person. Can I suggest to you that that's not you? That's the accuser of the brothers, the accuser of the sisters, because you didn't receive a spirit of fear. Scripture says when you were saved that you received a spirit of power, love, and a sound mind. And so that is the enemy attacking you. That is the enemy accusing you, bringing you fear. Perhaps the accusation comes into your life with hopelessness. I'll never get out of this. I'll never make it. I might as well just give up. Can I suggest to you that that's the accuser speaking hopelessness into your life? Because the Bible says that God is the God of all hope. Perhaps you're feeling worthless. You just have these voices over and over and over again. Maybe not, it's not even an outside voice. Maybe it's just a repeating thought that comes in your head like a skipping CD. You're, you're, you're worthless. You'll never amount to anything. You'll always be a failure. No one likes you. You have no value. Can I tell you that the Bible says that you're a child of God? You're bought with a price. You're a treasure in a field. You're an heir of the kingdom. You're the salt of the earth. You're the light of the world. That's what scripture speaks about you. And so if you're feeling worthless over and over and over again, it's the accuser of the brethren speaking to you. Maybe it's anxiety. Just always dealing with anxiety. Well, I'm just an anxious person. I, I think I'm just a person that, that, that's always going to be like that. I'm always anxious about everything. The Bible says, do not be anxious about anything. But by prayer and petition, with thanksgiving, submit your request to God. And the peace of God that transcends all human understanding will guard your heart and mind in Christ Jesus. That's your inheritance, beloved. So when you're feeling anxious, when you're feeling fearful, when you're feeling worthless, when you're feeling condemned, well, I, I am just such a failure. All I do is wrong. All I do is sin. I can never, ever be acceptable to God. That's the enemy because Jesus said, therefore, there is now condem no condemnation. <laughs> just making sure you're still listening. For those who are in Christ Jesus, for the law of the spirit of life has set me free for the law of sin and death. Are you letting the accuser have a field day with your mind? That's what he wants to do. But verse 11, I love this. It says, they triumphed over him. 
by the blood of the lamb and the word of their testimony, and they did not love their lives so much as to shrink from death. I want to give you three keys from that essential scripture on how you can fight the war for your life against the accuser of the brothers. Three keys. Number one, they triumph by the blood of the Lamb. We've talked about it every sermon in Revelation. It is the foundational truth that all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. Adam and Eve chose sin. The whole world was subjected to the fall of man. You have sin in your life. I have sin in my life. And the Bible says the wages of sin is death. You deserve to die and spend eternity in hell paying for your sin. You are not good enough to get into the presence of a righteous, all-loving, and perfect God. And therefore, the sacrificial system began for the people of Israel A pure, spotless lamb was taken, its throat was slit, it was killed, and its blood was for atonement for the people's sin. But they had to do it time and time and time again because the people kept sinning and sinning and sinning. We cannot stop sinning. And so the lamb had to be killed over and over and over. Hundreds, thousands, millions of lambs killed Until one day, Jesus Christ, the Son of God, walks upon the earth. And John the Baptist looks at him and says, Behold, the Lamb of God that takes away the sins of the world. Finally, one who is completely perfect, who knew no sin, came and walked upon the earth. And when he died on the cross, he took our sins. He took my sins. He took your sins. The scripture says, he who knew no sin became sin on our behalf so that we might become the righteousness of God. The Bible says that he himself bore our sins in his body on the cross so that we could die to sin and live for righteousness. What was Jesus doing when he was dying on the cross? He was taking your sin. He paid the price for your sin. If you're like, well, I'm not that big of a sinner, you are slapping the Savior in the face because he died in excruciating pain for you. He loves you so much that he died for your sins. That's how much God loves you. He didn't stay dead. He rose from the dead, defeating the power of sin and death once and for all. How do we as the church defeat the enemy? By standing on the blood of the Lamb. It's not by our good deeds. It's not by you being a good person. It's not by you knowing enough. It's not by you serving enough people. It's not by you helping enough grannies across the street. It's you putting your confidence in Jesus, crucified, resurrected, and coming again. The blood of the Lamb. And if you don't know him today, and you don't know if you're going to spend eternity with him in heaven, you start beating the devil in your life by crying out, Jesus, I need you. Come into my life. Wash me clean and fill me with your Holy Spirit. Take me from spiritual death where I'm a slave to the enemy, the ruler of the world. Do you know that everyone is born a slave to the enemy. He's the ruler. But once we embrace the life of Jesus, once we receive that gift of his death on the cross, his resurrection from the dead, we are born anew. The power of the blood of the lamb. They triumph by the blood of the lamb. Second key, and the word of their testimony. 
What's your testimony? It's amazing grace. How sweet the sound that saved a punk like me. (laughs) That saved a sinner like me. That saved a wretch like me. I once was lost, but now I'm found. I was blind, but now I see. That is your testimony. I put my faith in the death and resurrection of Jesus Christ, and the enemy has no hold on me anymore. I'm destined for heaven. I will not go to hell and pay for my sins. But secondly, it's the word of your own testimony, believer. The enemy starts attacking you, and you start feeling beat down, and you start reminding yourself of your testimony. Oh, no. I remember when Robert Herbert was in high school, and he was in sin up to his eyeballs, and he was living for the world, and Jesus broke in, and he just snatched me right out of that. And he set me free. And I remember when I had a heart condition that almost killed me. I was in the hospital for a month, laying there, all kinds of tubes and things attached to me. And Jesus came in and healed me. And I've never had a problem again with my heart. Jesus, I remember that. And I remember when you called me, you took my worthless life and you made me something. And I've just been seeing you do amazing things. Oh my gosh, have you seen the wife he gave me? It's amazing. (laughs) Talk about amazing grace. And you just start reminding yourself, speaking out your testimony. But lastly, your testimony comes from the word, which is witness, to witness. You know, I remember facing my greatest spiritual attack when I was in my mid-20s. I mean, my mind was being bombarded. I, I, I felt hopeless. I felt like I was going crazy. I, maybe you felt that way before where you're like, I, All these people around me, they look normal, and I am just experiencing such crazy thoughts, and I just feel plagued in my mind, and I can't get free. I know there's some of you in this room that are like that today, and I just remember I would pray, and I'm reading the Word, and I just can't seem to get over it, and I'm just wanting to to be done. And then I had this thought that popped in my head. I think it was from the Lord. I remembered some movies where, like, the hero is just surrounded by the enemy, And it's just very clear that he's about to get killed. But instead of just like handing over his gun and just saying, kill me, he's just all of a sudden realizing he's going to die. Goes bonsai. Like goes kamikaze. And he's like, I'm going to take as many of you guys down before you take me. Like I remembered the Alamo. (laughs) The end of Davy Crockett. You know he's going to lose. We read the stories, but he is just swinging that musket with that coonskin cap on himself, taking down Santa Ana's troops. And I just thought, you know what, devil? If you're going to destroy me, if you're going to make my life miserable for the rest of my days, I am going to make your life miserable. And I am going to witness to as many people as I see. I was like, I'm just going bonsai evangelism. And, I, and so that night, I was just like, you know what? If I'm going to get destroyed, I might as well take out as many of the enemy's strongholds in this city. So I just started sharing with everyone. I mean, people would just look at me. I'm like, I'm coming after you. <laughs> <clears throat> Do you know that attack ended in two days? Why? Because the enemy doesn't want you to be a bonsai evangelist, folks. <laughs> like, that's the last thing he wants. And some of you just need to stand up and say, it's time to witness. Because I'm tired of the enemy eating my lunch, and so I'm going to go on the offensive. 
And it'll work. I'm about to start preaching. <laughs> Number three, the third key, they did not love their lives so much as to shrink back from death. Now, this has different meanings to different people in different times of history. Right now, going on in Iraq, I just received news even last night of yet another village being decimated by ISIS, the Islamic State. But I heard some great news from one of my Iraqi brothers who said as the Islamic State is coming in and actually taking whole families and killing their parents in front of children. He said in one village, not one single child denounced Jesus. Even after seeing their parents brutally murdered, I want to tell you that they are overcoming the enemy. And we want to pray for them. We want to cover them. We want to send aid to them. We want to be involved. Do you know that the church has been persecuted and killed more than any group in history? There have been more people that have died for the sake of Christ than all other groups put together. Why? Because the enemy hates the bride of Christ. The enemy hates the children of God. But we defeat him when we love not our lives as to shrink back from death, but say, here I am. There are some things worth dying for, and I say it's Jesus Christ. And when we stand for him, they can take our bodies, but they can't take our souls. We get promoted right into heaven. And the gospel goes forth because the world sees, wow, there's something that people believe in more than trying to preserve their lives. There's something worth dying for. And yes, that's not happening in our country Right now, I hope it never does. But I want to tell you that when you lay down your life, maybe not to death, but you lay down your time, or you lay down your reputation, or you lay down what other people think of you because you stand up and say, I will not go with the tide of current trends. I will stand for righteousness. I will call sin a sin, and I will lovingly talk about Jesus and say that he is truth, and he is the way, and he is the life, and I will serve those who come against me, and I will love those who hate me, and I will lay down my life for the church, and I will lay down my life to share his good news with my neighbor, and I will lay down my time, my resources, my finances. I will lay down down my life to advance his kingdom. Do you know that that defeats the enemy? And it advances the kingdom in this generation. That's going on the offensive. Serving. Sacrificing. Giving. Sharing. These are the ways we beat the enemy in our generation. Verse 12 says this, Therefore rejoice, 
you heavens and you who dwell in them. But woe to the earth and the sea because the devil has gone down to you. He's filled with fury because he knows his time is short. Some ask the question, if the devil's been defeated, if he's been thrown down, as the scripture says six times in the book of Revelation chapter 12, if he's been thrown down, then why are so many bad things happening It's found here because he's been thrown down to the earth and he knows his time is short, so he's filled with fury. If you're watching the news, which I suppose you are, you're seeing so many Christians being killed across the earth, especially in the Middle East. Why? Why? Because the enemy knows his time is short and he's filled with fury because there's never been such a time in the Middle East where people are coming to Christ. Like, are you following me? The enemy believes the gospel more than we do. Can I just say that again? The the enemy is convinced of the gospel message more than most people in the church. And so he knows when the gospel is preached, and he knows when people start getting saved that his time is near. Do you know there's whole people movements of Muslims coming to Christ across the Middle East? Why do you think there's such a violent response? It's because the enemy knows his time is short. Do you know that across India, where Hinduism has reigned, one movement just baptized their one millionth Hindu convert for Jesus? And you think that's exciting. How about China, which was known as the largest and darkest nation for years? In the last century, 100 million people came to Christ conservatively, but statisticians believe it's more like 200 million just in the last century. There's more born-again believers in China than in the United States. God is moving across the world like never before. Of course the enemy is going into fury. Of course he's freaking out because his time is short. Because our hope is that this genocide, the war, the hatred, the rape, the destruction, it's not going to last forever. Because not only is Jesus on the throne in heaven, the Bible It's very clear that he's returning and he's going to sit on a throne on earth and he's going to take the devil and he's going to throw him into the fiery sulfur known as hell forever. The devil will be defeated once and for all and I'm getting ahead of myself because I don't want to end the book of Revelation yet. (laughs) Jesus is triumphant. You, the church, will be triumphant. But the message this morning is you can walk in triumph now as you exercise the authority that Jesus has given you. Just stand up with me.